Good morning. Good morning. My name is Matt Howell. I'm one of the pastors here. I especially want to welcome you to Redeemer. If this is uh, your first time to tune in or your, I don't know, 30th time to tune in, however many weeks we've been doing this, wherever. I'm just, I'm just thankful that you've uh, chosen to hang out with us and join us. If you consider yourself to be spiritual, if you consider yourself to be skeptical, if you're convinced of the truth claims of Christianity or curious about the truth claims of Christianity or confused, honestly, regardless of really wherever you find yourself, we're just thankful that you've chosen to hang out with us this morning. So thanks for joining us. Welcome to Redeemer. Well, if you're new to Redeemer, what is Redeemer? Redeemer is a church. And uh, well, what that means is we're a community of people and we're trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And the way that we do that is we gather together each week, just like this, or in person at Peabody Park, to worship God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might rest in his great love for us. And then another way that we do that is we get together throughout the week in community groups, and we get together individually over coffee and tea and Coke, so that we might remind one another of his great love for us. And as we rest in his love and we remind one another of his love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that we might reflect his great love. Because we, we, we dream of seeing our city flourish and flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. So that's who Redeemer is. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love. Love God and love our neighbor as we rest in his love, remind one another of his love, and reflect his love. Now, we're pivoting towards the fall. And what we're going to do this fall is we're going to start to look through uh, and begin to do a different sermon series by taking a, I guess, a sustained look at what's called now the Sermon on the Mount. This is um, perhaps one of uh, the most uh, famous sermons that's ever been preached. It's a sermon that Jesus himself preached. You can find kind of the manuscript of the whole sermon found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You could sit down and read the whole thing in 12 to 15 minutes this afternoon. And uh, it, it's, 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 it's awesome. I'm really excited about this. Even if you're not familiar with Christianity, even if you're really not even familiar with the Bible, my guess is you've heard bits and pieces of this sermon. It's that famous. So uh, turn the other cheek. That's a phrase that you find in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, go with someone the second mile. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, you you are the salt of the earth. Judge not, lest ye be judged. It's all the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Talk less, smile more. Okay, that's not Sermon on the Mount, but you get it. It's, 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 you know, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've heard some of the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably one of the most famous sermons that's ever been delivered, and it's all about what happens when a community of people decide to start to relate to Jesus as their king. In fact, if you boiled the whole thing down to my little nutshell for what the Sermon on the Mount basically is saying is this. It is how to live as a community under the reign of King Jesus. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. How to live as a community under the reign of King Jesus. Now, who cares? (laughs) Why, should, why would that matter to you? Why, why should you care about that? Well, if you noticed, um, in the opening 10 verses that was just read, Jesus repeats the word blessed eight different times. Uh, theologians refer to this as the, as the eight beatitudes, the eight blessings. 
Now, I know blessing is, it can be a little bit of an icky church word because it, it gets overused and it gets misconstrued. But what, is, what does blessing mean biblically? In its most basic sense, blessing has to do with happiness. The blessed life is the happy life, the good life. And nothing, honestly, is more relevant to your life and mine than the pursuit of happiness. I mean, I've been doing some research about this, and there has been, there's been this explosion of interest in the past number of years on, on happiness and how we get happiness. So I read this week uh, that the most popular class at Yale is a class called Psychology and the Good Life, which is a class about happiness. In 2018, 1,200 students enrolled for it. 1,200 students. This is obviously pre-social distancing, but this is nearly one quarter of the entire undergraduate student body. We're interested in taking a class on happiness. I think that's pretty telling. In fact, there was a similar course that was offered at Harvard in 2006 that had 900 students enroll in it. Both of these classes, as far as I know, were only offered once because of of the huge demand for it. It screwed up all the other uh, class schedules. Uh, There's podcasts about happiness. There are TED Talks about happiness. You know, we have songs devoted to happiness. Because I'm happy. (laughs) When you're, in a, when you're in a room by yourself, the, uh, you know, the, the filter gets you know, thrown away. Um, we, we, you know, we, we even have happiness enshrined as one of our uh, self-evident and uh, unalienable rights in our Declaration of Independence. It is a self-evident truth, unalienable right to, for, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is, uh, I think the pursuit of happiness is the reason behind everything that we're doing. The reason why you're sitting at home right now in your sweatpants watching this, and the reason why somebody is not watching this and they're at brunch instead, is because it's the quest for happiness. You know, Blaise Pascal, uh, 1600s mathematician and philosopher, one of his most famous quotes says this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend towards this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every human being, even of those who hang themselves. Here's his point. Happiness is the end to which everything else is the means. This is why we have expressions like, um, what good is money if it doesn't make you happy? Nobody says, what good is happiness if it doesn't make you money? Happiness is the thing that we're all after. We all want the happy life, the blessed life. So the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is utterly relevant. And we should all deeply care about it, regardless of where you are spiritually, because this is Jesus' take on what the happy life is, on what the good life is. And you're going to find out, if you choose to stick around with us through this particular series, is that Jesus' vision of the good life, of the happy life, it's, it's not just a little spiritual supplement to our vision of the good life. 
It's not a little Christian add-on or a Christian little upgrade to our vision of the good life. It's completely antithetical, completely opposite to the way that we tend to typically think. It is, it is utterly counterintuitive. So there's so much loaded into these first few verses. We're going to take two weeks to look at them. And what I want to do is this week to today is really just kind of tiptoe into this subject by looking at two things, the happy life, the good life, who has it and why? Who has it? Who has the good life? Who has the happy life? And why is that the case? And just to cite my sources, I'm getting a lot of help on this particular passage from a friend of mine, Brent Webster. Thank you, Brent. If you're out there, love you. So first of all, who has the happy life? Who has the good life? And and you're going to see from this list, it's not who you would think. Because when you and I think of, okay, who has it made in the shade? Who has it good? Who, who, um, Who has the happy life? And you and I immediately think of the winner's. We think of people at the top, people that are successful, people that are attractive, people that are beautiful, people that are successful. We, we think of celebrities. We think of um, athletes. We think of you know, social media influencers. We think of the people at the top. We think of the somebodies. And Jesus says, we are 100% wrong. It's not the people at the top. It's the people at the bottom. It's not the winners, it's the losers. I mean, just look at his list. Let's just walk through a little bit of this. Uh, Look at verse three. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, think about someone who is poor in finances, poor in money. If you're you're financially poor, it's describing someone that doesn't have um, resources, somebody that is unable to provide for what they need. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be uh, unable to provide for yourself spiritually, that you don't have the adequate spiritual resources to take care of yourself. Spiritually speaking, you're bankrupt. You're on welfare. Okay, keep going. Look at, look at verse four. He says, blessed are those who mourn. You know, one translation, happy are those who are sad. Someone who mourns is someone who is emotionally raw, someone who grieves over their sin and their broken condition. They don't, they don't just intellectualize it, but they, they, they feel it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And not just, um, not just aching over the condition of your own soul, but aching over the broken condition of the world. Those who mourn. Look, look at verse five, the meek. Who wants to be thought of as meek? I mean, I mean, it seems like in our day, it's just, a, it's just another word for weakness. People who are weak. And what Jesus means is basically someone who is humble. Someone who recognizes that life is not about them. And then look at verse six. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Think about when you're hungry. When you're hungry, you are empty. You, 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 are, you are internally vacant. And so you're craving something, longing for something that you don't have. And Jesus says, those who are happy, those who have the good life. You want to know who has the good life? It's those who are empty and empty, I mean, hungry and starving for righteousness. And then you jump down to the end, look at verse 10. He says, the persecuted the picked on, the oppressed, the ridiculed, the rejected. And you start looking at this list and you're like, this makes no sense. Jesus is saying, here's who has the happy life. It's those who are spiritually bankrupt. 
those who are overwhelmed with sorrow, those who the world calls weak, those who are taken advantage of because of their kindness, those who are rejected and excluded, those are the people that have the blessed and the happy life. It's not the people on the top, it's the people on the bottom. When you and I think intuitively, who has it made in the shade? We start looking up and Jesus says, no, 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 you need to start looking down. This kind of reminds me of, uh, and you'll know where I'm going with this, that, that this, um, this scene from the old claymation movie, Rudolph and the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, like the old, the old school one. Remember that scene when they go to the island of misfit toys? It's just this island of this collection of mismatched, broken toys that the rest of the world wants nothing to do with. And so you, <laughs> you have a boat that can't float, uh, instead of a jack-in-the-box, you have a Charlie-in-the-box, which is just a hilarious joke, in my opinion. Uh, and you have a cowboy on a, on a... Instead of a cowboy on a horse, you have a cowboy on an ostrich. It's just this ridiculous, random collection of misfits. It's the island of misfit toys. And Jesus is saying, that's the church. Those are the, those are the people that have the good life. Those are the, the, that's the community of my followers. Now, here's the question. Is that what you thought? If you consider yourself a Christian, is that how you would describe yourself? Is that how you would describe the church? Is that how you think of the church, of just this community of misfits, people at the bottom? Well, Jesus seems to think that those who are blessed, those who have the, the happy life, the good life, is just this collection of misfits at the bottom. And of course that raises this second question. Okay, why? Because that makes zero sense to us. Why does Jesus say those who have the blessed life are, are not the winners, but it's the losers. It's not those on top, but it's those that are at the bottom. Here's why. Because it's only the people at the bottom. They're the only ones that are in a position to understand grace. It's only those who are at the bottom that are in a position to understand grace. Maybe you remember the movie Unbroken, it came out in 2014. It, it, was, it was based off of a book that was written about the life of Louis Zamperini. Zamperini. He was uh, an, uh, an Olympic track star whose career was cut short in the 40s because of World War II, and he, was, he, was, he had to quit his track career and he was drafted into the, uh, drafted into the war and he has an unbelievable story. He, he survives a plane crash in the Pacific Ocean and he's stranded in open waters on a life raft and, and he survives for 47 days, stranded out there trying to drink, trying to collect any rainwater, trying to uh, catch fish. Uh, he, he's being shot at by, you know, uh, enemy aircraft. There's, there's this, you know, horde of sharks that are swirling underneath him. For 47 days, a month and a half, he's out there. Miraculously, he, he survives and he is rescued. But unfortunately, he's rescued by the enemy army, by the Japanese army. And he's taken into a prisoner camp where for two and a half years, he's a prisoner where he is routinely tortured physically and mentally. And he survives that. 
and he's eventually rescued and he's, and he's taken back home. And it's just this unbelievable story, unbroken. He's an unbroken person. Here's this man with such grit and resilience that he, he is able to uh, keep going with all of the crazy things that gets thrown into his life. But the book doesn't stop there. The book tells the rest of the story of when he comes back home and he gets married and his marriage is just a disaster, largely because of him. He becomes an alcoholic. He, uh, you know, he's so deeply traumatized by his experience in the, in the war that he, he, he relentlessly fantasizes about uh, exacting his revenge on those who had captured him and tortured him. And so he just becomes this, this angry, resentful man. He, he's an addict and his life completely unravels and he hits rock bottom. And it's at that point while he's at the bottom that he has an encounter with God. He finds himself at a Billy Graham crusade in downtown Los Angeles and he hears the gospel for the first time and he has an encounter with grace and he becomes a Christian. Here is this man that for so long was unbreakable and it, yet it wasn't until he was actually broken that he has an encounter with grace. I mean, it's crazy. A plane crash couldn't do it. 47 years of, you know, 47 days of being adrift in open sea couldn't do it. Two and a half years of being tortured couldn't do it. It was only when his marriage is failing, only when he becomes an addict and he is unable to make his life work anymore. That's when he finally breaks. And it's then that he has an experience of grace. That's why Jesus says it's only the people at the bottom that are in a position to understand grace because they're the only ones that, that, that come to terms with the fact that they need it because they're broken. They've been humbled into the dust. I mean, if you think about it like this, the world offers you blessing. The world offers you a happy life, but there's all these big ifs attached to it. The world says you can be happy if you're successful, if you come into some money, if you marry the right person, if you're well-connected, if you're attractive, all these giant ifs, it's a world of merit where you earn everything you get. And then we come along and we take that logic and we apply it to God. I mean, the average person who believes that there is a God thinks something like this. Well, God will bless me. God will give me a happy life if I obey, if I follow the rules, if I try hard enough, if I pray, if I read the Bible consistently, if, if, and you, you just kind of see the logic there. The logic is obedience, then blessing. I'll follow the rules, I'll do the right thing, then I'll get the blessing. And here comes along Jesus, here comes, here comes Jesus. And what's crazy in this sermon, before he gives a single rule, he starts declaring his blessings. Eight of them in a row, rapid fire. Before he gives one command, he declares to you God's love and favor and blessing. He's blowing up all of our categories. What he's doing is he's showing us that the good life, the happy life cannot be earned. It can only be received. And so he shows up declaring it. This is why the whole sermon begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
you know, most religious people tend to think of themselves as, you know, fairly good people, decent people. We say about ourselves, you know, okay, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm not an axe murderer. I've, I've, you know, I've done some bad things, but hey, I've done some pretty good things too. If you were to look at my spiritual bank account, I mean, it's not great, but it's not nothing either. And that's not, that's not porn in spirit. You know, as Tim Keller <laughs> kind of famously said, that's, that's being middle class in spirit. You haven't been broken yet. You're not at the bottom. What a Christian does is a Christian comes to God and says, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to impress you with. I have no resume to offer you to try to warrant your blessing. And even the best things that I've done, if I'm honest, they are shot through with pride and selfishness and my attempt to manipulate my circumstances. I've got nothing. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it means to be at the bottom. And the whole Sermon on the Mount flows from that first sentence. In fact, the entire Christian life flows from that first sentence. You cannot earn his blessing. You can only receive it. And so you and I are invited to come and to receive it with one condition. We don't bring our morality. We don't bring our resume. We don't bring our best intentions. We bring one thing. Need. God wants for us to come to him with our need, with our poverty, with our brokenness, so that we can receive the riches of his grace. It's all, it's all by grace. The good life begins and ends when you give up on your ability to make life work for yourself. When you give up on your ability to control your life and you just give up and you rest beneath the avalanche of his grace. That's the good life. That's the happy life. Now you might think, okay, how, how, do, how can God do that? How, how can God relate to me in a way where he says to me, your merit is, is no good here? How can God just dole out his blessings like that? I thought he was supposed to be holy. I thought he was supposed to have all the, what's the point of all these rules? Well, we're going to get into all of that as the Sermon on the Mount progresses. But here's what you need to know. Before this sermon ever describes us, it describes somebody else. Think about Jesus. Take these Beatitudes and just lay them like a, like a template over Jesus himself. Jesus became poor. Jesus once said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air uh, have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. He, he died without a possession to his name. Jesus mourned. The Bible refers to Jesus as a man of sorrows. He's, he's constantly walking around grieving, weeping, aching over the state of the world. Jesus was meek. You know, later on in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, he says that he is gentle and humble of heart. He is always so tender and delicate with people that are fragile. Jesus hungered and thirsted after righteousness. He served the poor. He served the outcast. He, he welcomed those that the rest of the world wanted nothing to do with. Jesus was merciful. He was always embracing and feasting with, with sinners. 
Jesus was pure in heart. He had a singular laser focus on loving God and loving his neighbor. Jesus was a peacemaker. I mean, he's asking for forgiveness for the very people that are in the middle of executing him. And Jesus was persecuted. He was ridiculed, oppressed, murdered, executed on a cross. Why? So that God could give you his blessing. He was rejected by God so that God's love and favor and kindness could be poured out on you without you ever even lifting a finger. We can never earn it. And so he earned it for us. So the question is, will you receive it? Will you come to God with need and receive the good life? Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, if we are honest, we are overwhelmed. We are out of our league. We don't have the resources to make life work for ourselves. Some of us are trying. Some of us are really stressed out in the middle of trying to do it. I pray that you would, in your kindness, break us. Bring us to the end of ourselves where our only option is to surrender before the avalanche of your grace. And would you indeed teach us what it means to live in light of that grace individually and as a community, that we would know what it means to drink in and live out that grace more and more every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.